turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Well, welcome back as we head into hour three today. We've been talking a lot here, well, over the years, but certainly over the last couple of weeks, even more so about the drug crisis uh, in America. And it is a privilege and an honor to welcome to the show someone I have admired for many years now. He is Professor Keith Humphreys. He is the Esther Ting Memorial Professor in School of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. Uh, worth following on Twitter very much so, too, by the way. Keith N. Humphreys is his handle. He flagged a story this morning that um, I, 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 it, words almost fail in describing it. I'll just give you the headline from the Washington Post profile of the story. Drugs killed eight friends one by one in a tragedy seen across the United States. This is a story out of Greenville, North Carolina, which, uh, to give people a sense of it, is a sliver, just a sliver of the size of the town of Tempe here, which is, you know, we think of as a small town. Greenville is several times smaller. Professor Humphreys, um, you see an increasing number of towns, large and small, where drug uh, the drug crisis is moving like a scythe through them. In this community of Greenville, it's probably going to devastate the city unless something is done. Thanks for joining us. Your thoughts initially, sir. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Seth. No, I, I, I really uh, that story I, uh, I found overwhelming. I am from West Virginia, uh, by the way, which yeah. is yeah. number one. I'm sad to say in overdose death and multiple kids I went to high school with or, or have lost their lives to overdose, and you hear about it all the time. And one of the things that story made clear is that you know I think you know parents, families, at some level, you want to think drugs are something that happens. To someone else, somewhere else, and these families being shocked, and, you know that you know it's happening everywhere. Uh, you know, you get good kids, so to you know, quote unquote, uh, you know, good students uh, into sports, friendly, and all that, and yet they're still getting trouble with drugs. And uh, that's you know, when when, it, when you have that level of saturation throughout society, that's how you can end up in the situation where we are, where probably you know this year something like ten thousand people a month are going to yeah. die of a drug overdose. Incredible as that is. I was saying the other day on the show that to give people a sense of how bad this has uh, become, the last time people may remember a big national or nationwide effort on this, uh, early 90s, let's say late 80s, early 90s, this is your brain on drugs campaign and all the rest, we were losing, give or take, 10,000 people a year to drug poisoning deaths. Uh, that was in a population of about 245, 250 million people. Our population's increased about a third since then. Drug deaths have increased about a thousand percent. That is a yeah. big, big dis disproportion and a big, big change in this country. Ab absolutely. The, the other comparison I make for people who's in my age or who remember HIV AIDS yeah. is, you know, in the yeah. very worst year. Mm -hmm of that epidemic in terms of the acute death rate yep. is was dramatically lower yeah. than the death rate for uh, drug overdose. So this really is, you know, COVID, of course, took a lot of attention, sure. uh, you know, from all of us. But sure. this has 
really, I think, is the public health challenge in the moment. You know, but you're making an interesting point there because everyone remembers what this nation did in rolling up its sleeves on these campaigns when they were serious. Everyone remembers the very the several year long campaign to go after AIDS and arrest arrest it. Uh, certainly, I guess we could say we did that with drugs at one point in this country too. We certainly know how to make a campaign over something like a public health campaign over something like COVID. All of that's missing right now, it seems to me, on this very dramatic crisis, which is worse than the ones that we just mentioned. Absolutely right. Uh, I testified to the Senate uh, last time, I don't know, I think it was about a year ago. And, you know, I said, you know, COVID didn't even exist a year and a half ago, yet any of us can pick up our phone and and look up uh, how many people died of COVID yesterday in Iowa. And the answer will be there. And yet, how many people died over us? That, that data rolls into Washington four to six months after the fact, uh, and, and it isn't even difficult that to great find data. cross tabs through SAMHSA. Yeah, the whole bit. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that to me, and I say, like, you know, COVID shows what we can do yeah. as a country. We are a great country when we put our minds to it. And this just shows you we haven't put our minds to it. Even the most basic thing of like how many people are dying and where we don't even know that. If you look at, you know, how much we invest in the health care, it's uh, very small, given the number of people who, who died, you know, maybe 1% of our health care budget. So it, it doesn't seem like we are taking this seriously. I mean, it, which is a shocking thing to say because so many people are suffering. You think you would be, but you don't see uh, a, a kind of campaign like we had for HIV and it is unlike, uh, probably unlike HIV, uh, it's fair to say, and really politically incorrect, but I think honest to say COVID, this wasn't something that really affected people under 25 the way the, the, the drug problem does. This really does affect the young of the young. That is right. And, and if, you look at, if you look at deaths, COVID caused more deaths. But if you look at it differently, how many years of life mm-hmm. do we lose? Okay. It, it, it's it's the drugs because you know COVID. It's you know it's terrible. People die of COVID. The average person dies loses about ten years of life, which is awful. But mm-hmm. it's ten years of life. The average person dying of overdose is losing twenty five, thirty, forty years of life. So it, it it is having this massive you know impact on uh, you know our lifespan. I mean literally. I mean our our American lifespans are dropping, which is crazy. Unheard of. You know, life, Several years in life, a row now. Un- by yeah, the way, but by the I was way, say, professor- lifespans went up during Vietnam and World War II, <laughs> right. and now they're going down. Right. Right. This is this is a tremendous tremendous disorientation of of where we should be. By the way, Professor uh, Humphreys, mentioning COVID in the context of this, uh, not all the data has been sussed out yet because we're still early on in the aftermath or the downwash of it. But there's no question that COVID helped exacerbate this drug problem, didn't it? Help is the wrong word, but did exacerbate this No question at all. Okay. Uh, Overdoses went up by about a third in a year, and that has never happened in the history of the United States. And it's because you get this double whammy from COVID. The bad things that make people more inclined to use drugs, like isolation, Mm -hmm. stress, Mm -hmm. bereavement, lack of structure, are gone. And the good things like being able to get together, you know, with people easily having um, 12 step meetings, perhaps church, synagogue. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. it's been bad for it's been bad for all those kind of things that create the heart of communities. And so, you know, it's not surprising we got in the situation we are in. And I know from the work I do, because I'm in touch with a lot of people who have this problem, that some people who are very far into recovery, you know, five, 10, 20 years, you thought these are rocks of recovery yet during COVID. 
they got isolated and things started. And they became a relapse statistic, didn't they? That's right. That's right. Yeah. We're talking to Professor Keith Humphreys. Dr. Humphreys is the Esther Ting Memorial Professor uh, in the School of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. Professor, a word about the uh, rhetoric, uh, if that's the right word, or the terminology around this. I notice um, most people, and you have used the word, uh, the phraseology, drug overdose. I, I sometimes recoil from the phrase overdose, especially when it comes to things like fentanyl. You tell me if I'm right or wrong on this. It's it's not exactly, or at least it's not precisely an overdose in the sense of taking too much of a medicine that's been prescribed. I, I, I tend to use the word poisoning, and maybe it's confusing, yeah. but I, I wonder if you have a thought on that. You're right. You're right. Actually, that is what it is. And if you look at the technical medical term, like if you look at the CDC data, poisoning is what we use. Because okay. one of the interesting things is oftentimes people are taking their usual dose, and and maybe they've just <laughs> yes. lost some tolerance, yes. like they're they've yes. got the flu, yes. or they were just in jail, so yes. they hadn't taken in a while, and then their usual dose ends their life. Um, so yeah, overdose is a term we're stuck with, and it's not a great term um, because. It, it, it really poisoning would be the the better better one. And we are in a weird kind of middle area on this because you want to communicate in a way that people know what you're talking about. An overdose for That's so many right. years has been the termino- terminology of art, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. But <clears throat> intellectually, if we can get people to accept the idea that it's poisoning, you know, you're in Stanford. You're at Stanford University. Someone just forwarded me today. We monitor as much as we can here. This stuff. Some of these public health messages, um, I think they're awful, and I think they're disastrous, and I think they are also exacerbating. This one um, is put out by uh, the San Francisco Department of Public Health and the Harm Reduction Coalition. It has a group of five people partying. It's titled "No Overdose," K N O W, not. N-O, which would have been better, but K-N-O-W. And it says, change it up. Try ingesting or smoking instead of snorting. This, this to me, is public health malfeasance. Yeah, and it's amazing. So that same uh, department is putting up billboards saying, you know, do not smoke tobacco under any Right. You know what? This is a big point, and I have to take a quick commercial break. Can I just hold you real quick? We'll pick up on that of point course. when we come back, because I don't, I don't want it to be lost. We are delighted and privileged as well as honored to have uh, Professor Keith Humphreys with us. He is the Esther Ting Memorial Professor at Stanford University in their School of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the major cities, I've seen it in New York, I've seen it in D.C., and now in San Francisco. If uh, if it's a cigarette you're smoking, they want you to stop and quit. If it's fentanyl, they want you to start slow and start small and be safe. You tell me something isn't massively wrong in this country. Professor Humphreys will enlighten us further when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, Dr. Keith Humphreys is our guest. He's the Esther Ting Memorial Professor at the School of uh, Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. We're talking about the drug crisis in America. Professor, just to reset, if you live in San Francisco, New York, or D.C., you'll see signs telling uh, fentanyl users, heroin users, to use safely, start small, go slow. You will have next to them uh, signs, signage, that if you uh, are smoking Marlboros or Camels, you need to quit and stop now. Uh, Something's wrong here, sir. Uh, What we learned from tobacco, which is, 
you know, there isn't a way to consume it without significant risk. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously a very mixed message. And, you know, you, you mentioned the, the ad you know, in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. It's not just the, you know, here's how to use fentanyl, but the, the, the picture portrayed is a bunch of young, attractive people having a terrific time. Oh, I mean, yes, good I, point. Yep. I, I look at it and think, wow, that sounds great. Where do I get fentanyl? Uh, um, in a public you know, bar or restaurant or something. Yes, you're right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So that I mean, that's not the message that we we want to uh, want to be giving people. We still want to communicate care. You know, I, I don't want people to die from fentanyl. Uh, you know, I do want people to have naloxone to rescue them. But that's different than sort of glamorizing fentanyl use and expecting it. You know, things to somehow get better. Uh, that's that's. I mean, that that was that was the battle public health fought with tobacco, right? Yep. To stop them. Yes. From doing that. Yes. I saw. And, and now a... they're doing it. I saw a banner on our profile, you know, the story of this uh, this child in San Francisco that... Uh, yes, I do. I, 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 Go ahead. Talk to the reporter. I, I talked to the reporter about it. So this was really shocking as a 10-month-old. Uh, I, as I, said, I said to the paper, actually, the luckiest uh, baby that this baby is still alive, but yeah. a 10-month-old somehow got exposed to fentanyl in a public park. Yeah. And thank God, um, you know, the EMT was able to save... Uh, uh, that child, but yeah, that's. Um, Let, let's uh, make no bones about uh, this for the audience. A ten-month-old had to be given Narcan. Yes, correct. That's right. Now, I saw this story being reported on one. T- I think it was Fox. I I can't be- remember for sure, but I think it was in the little banner or the crawl said something to the effect of Narcan now available in many cities, which I don't have a particular problem with. But a friend of mine put it this way, and I think that's right. I think he's right. He said, so we have shark-infested waters, and we're building prosthetic limb stores on the beachheads rather than saying, don't go in the damn waters and let's shoot the sharks. That would be the more sane thing. Instead, we're building prosthetic limb stores at the beach. I'd, see, I, I'd use a little different metaphor. We're building shark cages. I mean, you know, we're trying to stop, stop the damage from happening. Yeah. But, yeah, fundamentally, you have to stop swimming with sharks. Yeah. So the, the, there's nothing, I mean, you know, if you're going to take, you know, harm reduction, the idea that, okay, we, we will try to at least keep you alive, uh, seriously, you have to think that, okay, but if this is a full public health strategy, harm reduction alone yeah. will never end the epidemic. That would be like saying with cancer, let's just hang out and wait till people get stage four, and then we'll try some last-ditch treatment. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's never going to work. Or, or if we would say that with HIV, you, know, mm-hmm. you have to do things about prevention. And that means telling people to change their behavior, whether it's people who are already engaged in behavior or telling people who aren't, you know, please don't start engaging in this behavior. But it's it's sort of turned now in this weird kind of kind of rhetoric into that that's somehow, um, you know, unreasonable or an infringement or judgmental to tell people not to use fentanyl. Um, you know, I, I would tell no one that, that I love to use fentanyl. I, I don't agree that, that, that an anti-fentanyl message is in any way oppressive to anybody. Right. right. And the idea that uh, these are victimless crimes, uh, except for the user themselves, is betrayed or belied by the story of this 10-month-old, which yeah. is going to happen more and more. On my morning jog yesterday was running by used syringes. That that that, that will cause a problem. That, that's yeah. going to cause and, and, a problem. And in the, the neighborhood that this is the toughest, San Francisco, where I spend a lot of time, which is called the Tenderloin, uh-huh. um, it, it's it's a it's a daily thing. I mean, this is a very dramatic incident, but the far more common thing would be like, you know, older people afraid to walk sure. down the street sure. uh, in their neighborhood or watching kids. Uh, I, I saw a mom walking her child down the middle of a street with traffic in it because the entire sidewalk was absolutely jammed 
with people using yeah. and dealing fentanyl. She didn't feel safe. Um, and that's the thing is like, you know, my view of harm reduction is that we're all entitled to it. The whole population is. So it's not just about people who use drugs. It's about the rest of us, too. And that gets forgotten sometimes in the rhetoric uh, around uh, how we how we're approaching drugs, at least where, where I live. No, I so, think that's a good I point. Think, no, yeah, I think it's yeah. a good point. But I also think there's another uh, in tandem to that point is there is a level of cruelty that we need to, I think, appreciate a little better about letting people to on to continue on in their in their in their drug use. Uh, the idea of a victimless victimless crime, people slowly and sometimes fastly, sometimes wittingly, sometimes unwittingly, committing suicide is not compassion. Yeah, so I mean, what you're talking about, I think, is one of the you know not to be too lofty. It's like one of the oldest debates in philosophy and ethics. Like, at what point yeah. do we say a person is? So unable to take care of themselves that we're going to essentially danger to self and others. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so, like you know, if I'm walking down the street, I I do carry Narcan when I go to the city, um, and I saw somebody who was dying of an overdose, they would not be in a position to consent, and I would administer that overdose. And most people would say, "Yeah, that sounds right." Yeah. And I said, "Okay, well, let's say now they are conscious, and but they're standing in the middle of the street screaming about you know uh, that the the, the CIA is after them and they're high as a kite." Um, do I have a, a right then to say, okay, we need to, if yeah. I can't... In other words, five minutes to, before they stop breathing is what we're talking about. That's right. About. That's yeah. right. Can you do something? And right. then somebody say, no, 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 you need to respect their autonomy. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I, my assumption is when you save that person and, they, and the drugs were off, they will thank you yeah. for the fact that you violated their autonomy. Um, and at the moment, we're at very much at the more the end, except in that extreme case of imminent death, that the dominant view, uh, at least in a lot of the West Coast cities, is that you, know, you do nothing. And, and, and it's funny because it, it it makes doing nothing almost like a, a kindness. Right. I have so much respect for you, right. I will let you die under this bridge Right. I, right. I almost analogize it to someone trying to save a drowning swimmer. You know, they, their initial instinct can be to fight you off. Uh, yes. Five hours later, they're gonna they're gonna name their children. Good analogy. After you. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's a good analogy, uh, Professor. I wanted to talk to you about a couple other things with regard to this. And again, I'm just up against a quick break here. So if you'll permit okay. me, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about other drugs and uh, their interrelationship to all of this problem that seems to be so fa- focused on fentanyl right now, and uh, a fantastically, I think, important paper you did. Uh, for the uh, Journal of Psychological Medicine on um, therape- therapeutic use of psychedelic drugs. Uh, if we could touch on that briefly, too, if if you'll bear with me, I'll be right back with more with you. Thank you. I am uh, privileged to have with us, we are all privileged to have with us, uh, Dr. Keith Humphreys, Esther Ting Memorial Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. You've heard about the uh, these new mushroom therapies. Uh, you might not just be getting the whole story. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Dr. Keith Humphreys is our guest from Stanford University. He is a professor at the School of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Professor Humphreys, this is um, a, a discussion we've been having about fentanyl uh, and you, you, you probably know someone I, I, I have gotten to know and like an awful lot, uh, a Robert DuPont, a psychiatry. Oh, uh, I, yeah. Bob's a dear friend. Oh, good, yeah. good, 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 good. Um, 
He has made the point over the years that we I mean, we have to talk about obviously what's right in front of us. But he has, he has made the point over the years that we tend to err long term when we make these conversations about siloed drugs of the moment or siloed, mm-hmm. just siloing the one issue of fentanyl. Um, in Arizona, for example, obviously fentanyl is a huge problem. But you know what? In some of our counties, it's not the biggest. Uh, Yavapai County to our north, you may be familiar with Flagstaff or Prescott. It's actually meth um, is, is a bigger problem than fentanyl. It's it's the entire range of these. Uh, what, what what what's the best term of art? I, I'd like to use mind altering, illegal mind altering substances, dangerous substances to the brain, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Bob's Bob's uh, definitely right about that. The the enduring issue is addiction, mm-hmm. and and I would say it's not even just the illegal ones. I mean, we're losing uh, probably about a hundred thousand people a year to alcohol. Well, fair enough. Deaths on yes, the road yes. every day, yes, right? Yes, you know, um, yes. from alcohol. And, but we do seem to focus on one at a time, uh, but people who use don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look at, you know, quote-unquote opioid overdoses, mm-hmm. the the normal, the, the, the most common type of overdose is not just an opioid. It's an opioid and, they were, say, taking a like an Ativan or, or some other Yeah, we may have a Xanax problem we're not talking about. That, that is right. I think or, we do, or, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or yeah. there's a lot of, in the western United States, where you and I are both based, there's a lot of combined meth opioid use yeah. there's people also who and, and and maybe a bottle of scotch on top of that yeah. and and so um it, we, we focus on the one drug but there's the this broader issue of you know the our, our <laughs> the, the great human desire for these molecules combined with the fact that they um kill us mm-hmm. um you know in the short term they feel good in the long term they ruin our lives and that problem has been with us uh, since time immemorial I've never really been a huge fan, with all my sincerity on this issue. Uh, I've never really been a huge fan of the um, of the gateway theory with marijuana because I, it, I think it turns people off, and I don't think it bears out. But what I have noticed on the fentanyl death issue, Professor, and I don't know if you see the same thing. Um, if you talk to the, the DAs, I talk to the medical examiners, I talk to, um, and the counselors that talk to these families. Uh, almost all of them started with marijuana. Their brains or their souls or their psyches were primed usually with marijuana. You use marijuana, you're not going to go on necessarily to use something harder. But almost all the hard stuff seems seems to start there. I wonder if you have a comment on that. Yeah, so we don't want to – I like the way you put that. So we don't want to return to the kind of 80s scare story of everyone who picks up a joint will right. soon be homeless right. and addicted to heroin. Right, it's just not but, true. Yeah, but particularly with young people, starting regular use of any substance, mm-hmm. and again, I'll throw in alcohol, mm-hmm. increases your likelihood of progressing to the next one. And it's easy to see why that would be. First off, you may be hanging out with a different uh, type of person. Right. So the person who can regularly provide you with cannabis um, is also the person who is more likely to regularly provide you with There's a certain culture to the friendship, <laughs> so to speak. That's yes. right. Yeah. Ox- oxycontin. Yeah. So you start to know those people. You start yeah. to hang around with them. It gets normalized. And the other thing is, you know, the brain learns, you know, these feel good in the short term. That's why people use them. And the brain Um, craves, right? It craves more and more. That's right. Yeah. Right. And then and then so, you know, we know from identical twin studies, you know, genetically identical kids, you know, once Mark starts using a drug earlier, say it could be cannabis, they're more likely to start with other drugs. And so some sensitization and learning, oh, this sort of thing feels good. I'd like to try some other ones. So the longer you can, and I said, I'll be uh, can I say this to my own my own children? Is you know whether you're ever going to use substances in your life or not. The longer in life 
you can go without using them, the better shot you have. Because every year, particularly when you're a teenager, your, your brain is maturing and growing, your foresight is improving, your self-control is improving. If you can push these things out, even if you use a lot of drugs, if you start when you're 25 or 35, your odds of getting into trouble are a lot less than when you start when you're 15. Yeah, I want our governor to un- un- unveil a, um, a strategy and policy, something titled like getting to 21 or getting to 25. You know, if we can get them to yeah. th- those ages, the chances that they'll initiate seem to me uh, almost, almost nil. The opioid thing changes to- Changed a little bit of it, but I, anyway, you yeah, you yeah, take but, my but point. Mostly true, mostly yeah, true. You mostly walk up true. to any middle-aged smoker and ask when they started smoking; they almost never say when they were forty. Right, exactly. I mean, no, no the answer is I was twelve, I was yeah. sixteen. Yeah. You know, that's when the brain is the most likely to turn uh, you know drug use into a habit and then into a, an enduring change in the brain. That means you, you're going to have that that desire uh, at, at a way disproportionate level than you would have if you'd never used it. Yes, and the rewiring that craves more and more. I think the selfish brain is what Bob DuPont called it in one of his books. Let me take one more commercial break. This was a short segment. We'll come back uh, with uh, Professor Keith Humphreys in just a moment. It's been a uh, privilege having uh, Professor Keith Humphreys with us. He is the Esther Ting Memorial Professor uh, in the School of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. Professor, I did mention this. I was um, passing by a television uh, that had 16 minutes on it at a, at a, at a, at a someone's house uh, several months back, and they were doing this profile on uh, uh, on on mushrooms, mushroom therapy. I guess we would mm-hmm. more technically call it. How do you pronounce it? Psilocybin. Psilocybin. Yeah, yeah. And um, and 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 they were just telling me, oh my gosh, look how look how much this can cure. Look at and and a couple states are now are now going forward with it as a legal as a legal thing to treat uh, anything from ADD to depression. And my first thought was, oh my goodness gracious, you know, we we can't get our hands and arms around what we're doing now. Something tells me we are moving way too fast on this stuff. You have a piece in psycho piece. You have a study <laughs> in psychological medicine. Is good science leading the way in the therapeutic use of psychedelic drugs? Is good science leading the way, or is uh, something else? Yeah. Well, the implied answer of my me and my author Wayne Hall is no. Good science is not leading the way. So, you know, it, my, I'm I'm an agnostic about these. You know, medications, if they if they're proven safe and effective and big, rigorously done trials, then okay. Uh, but what we have instead are small uh, studies uh, done with uh, not very good follow up with people who know that they're taking the the mushroom. There's no what we call blinding in studies. In other words, it's, so it's not just the expectation, but it's actually the effect of the drug. And can't um, possibly you know, be a long term series of studies. Yeah, yes, that's right. They're, they're, they're short term, you mm-hmm. know. So. And then there's just a lot of money in this mm. space. It's very similar to the sort of early days of, of cannabis uh, uh, medicine when people were saying cannabis will cure pretty much everything. A lot of money comes in when you hype your results, um, and and, um, and and you know a big you know a big ton of money and weak science is often a recipe for bad drug policy. So it'd be much better if uh, we had um, you know big, careful safety and efficacy studies, and we just all found out together the way we would if Pfizer had, was rolling out a drug or, mm-hmm. or any other company was rolling out a drug. Not this way, um, and, um, and I'm, hope, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that the political process will get ahead 
of the science process and people, you know, states will just start doing ballot initiatives. Shall we start treating? I, I think that's what happened with marijuana, by the way. I mean, I think that's yeah. exactly what yeah. happened. Uh, the, the, the science was far behind the politics on it. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the claims that are made about medical marijuana are, you know, beyond ridiculous. If, if it actually was a medicine, the people making those claims would be in trouble. But it, because it exists in this sort of space where it's they're allowed to make therapeutic claims, but they aren't held if anything goes wrong, like like a doctor would be, um, it, I think there's a lot of flim-flam around that uh, industry. Can you just talk uh, broadly or generally a little bit about the culture we're in right now? Um, I kind of started noticing these increases uh, from the gains of – let me try this again. We did a good a job of reduction of substance abuse and illegal drug use and legal drug use. Uh, we did a good use uh, – a good job of reducing it uh, uh, leading into the early 90s. And then, and then it seems like we kind of let off that accelerator and things started to slowly rise and creep up and up and up and up and then quickly – to where we are now, about 108,000 deaths this past year. Um, maybe starting with uh, the advertising of, uh, of, of, of drugs on TV in the 95, 96, 97, somewhere around there. It's, it, I don't know where to exactly pinpoint it, but it seems we've kind of lost a culture of sobriety and sanity in a sense. I, yeah. I don't mean the word sobriety in a blue nose sense, but I do mean in a sense of safety, I suppose. No, I hear you. I mean, you know, we are, if, if, you know, if, if you've ever had a friend from another country come to the United States, one of the things that will astound them is our television, mm-hmm. where when you watch every show, you are told, whatever your problem is, there's a pill, ask mm-hmm. your doctor. Mm-hmm. And there's only, it's us in New Zealand, the only nations on earth that do that. But it mm-hmm. does kind of give you this message of no matter what is wrong, there's a pill, get that pill, get that pill. And, you know, that message is, uh, you know, facilitative of things like the opioid crisis, mm-hmm. which, after all, wasn't started by guys on street corners. That's right. It was started by doctors, right? right? right. And, and, and pharmaceutical companies even more so. Mm-hmm. And that 400% increase in prescribing, you know, it was essentially living out that message of, you know, everything can be fixed by a pill. And, of course, uh, you know, that, that is not what happened, particularly, you know, it, it, you know it's, Americans, I don't don't think they want to hear this thing of like we all we all age you know we're all going to die there's medicine can do a million things but fundamentally uh there's there's going to be some suffering there's never going to be an ad that says that um it's going to say it can all be fixed do you think Um, we do you think we can turn this around it's i'll tell you what my thesis is my thesis is that we do so little prevention messaging. We know prevention messaging works in a lot of areas, uh, from forest fires to drunk driving, yeah. God knows, and uh, and cigarettes, for gosh knows. It seems to me we've done so little on this issue that if we did, you know, a tenth of what we did with COVID, we would see results. Yeah, I mean, we definitely underinvest in prevention, and I do think that's really valuable, and I think a lot of it actually be focused on adults. I mean, the good news is, Teenagers today are actually less, you know, drink, drinking less, smoking less pot, using less drugs than they were 20 years ago. Good. It's actually a fairly safety-oriented group of kids. So that that is fortunate, but, you know, um, but that's only part of the population, obviously. We're losing a lot of people in the 20s and 30s. Um, and then there's also some things that are uh, probably macroeconomic. Mm-hmm. So, again, I'll go back to my home state mm-hmm. of, of West Virginia, you know, for a long time. 
if you were uh, a guy who graduated high school and that was the limit of your education, um, you weren't interested in college, there was a good job waiting for you. Um, and you could have a pretty decent life, uh, you know, you know, raise your kids, get married, have have a couple cars in the driveway, kids go to college. That's taken away for a lot of people in that part of the country. And it's probably not an accident that that is also a part of the country that has been hammered by this crisis is where that has disappeared. So some things to, you know, reinvigorate, um, you know, it's not the it's not the total economy. It's it's the it's the economy for people like that, people who, um, you know, have do not have a college education, but have a lot to contribute, but they need to have jobs that, you know, pay them well and give them a sense of self-respect and and an ability to provide. Uh, I think we need more of that. And that would help, I believe. I think it would. I think that's right. Uh, I certainly have read enough literature to understand that uh, falling economies and economic issues can certainly drive people to relapse once they have a, a tenuous hold on recovery. So I know that's there. It is interesting to point out, and I don't think you'll disagree, that this drug crisis, though, however, is affecting families that uh, have more than one home. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, So it's certainly it's certainly not limited to any social class, any racial, ethnic group. I mean, you can find somebody, uh, uh, you know, of, of any description you can you can imagine. You can find somebody who has a drug problem. So it's absolutely widely spread. I just where I'm just thinking about where it is most concentrated. Oh yes, oh yes, um, where yeah. where it's acute. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Well, uh, it's a delight uh, on a sad subject, but it is a delight to uh, to have your voice in your brain and your time on this, uh, Professor Humphreys. Uh, I hope this can be a down payment, and you will join us again. This has been tremendously helpful and enlightening, sir. Really appreciated the conversation, Seth. Thanks so much for asking me. Thank you. You betcha. I am Seth Liebson. I'll come back with a concluding thought. Little John Sebastian there for you, the love and spoonful. Welcome back uh, to the show. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon, some of your week with us. Uh, thank you to our sponsors at Y-Refi. If you are concerned with stock market volatility, Y-Refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market. It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. If you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. And there is no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily. You are paid monthly and there are no fees. It's a secure, collateralized portfolio that yields an up to 10.25% rate of return. That's right, up to 10 and a quarter percent. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34. That's 888-Y-REFI-34. They're based here locally, and they won't give you a sales pitch. They leave that to me and Larry Elder. They just like talking about what they're doing and letting it speak for itself. That uh, discussion with Keith Humphreys, uh, you know, I, I hesitated when I said, um, I hope this can be a bookmark and we'll have you back from time to time as a first-time guest. It would be nice if we didn't have to have these kinds of experts back on from time to time. It would it would be nice if we had a few public officials who took this stuff really seriously, rolled up their sleeves and did something about it. Uh, and, and And, you know, with the new legislature and the new governor, Coming into office, uh, I think something can be done about it. I think something not only should, but I think something can, and I think we're going to ignore it 
at our peril. We are talking about poisonings that take far more children than COVID. That was an interesting point Keith Humphreys made uh, about the AIDS crisis. This country knew what to do about, well, it didn't know at first what to do about AIDS, but it knew it had to do something. And there's not a person in this country that didn't know there was an AIDS crisis and that we were all in it. Yes, we were all in it together. Uh, his point of, uh, of, of, of proportion, we were losing 50,000 people a year in our worst year of AIDS deaths. Well, we're more than double that with drugs. We're more than double that. We do know prevention's working. And uh, any legislator or anyone in the governor's office or the incoming governor's office that uh, would like me to give them a briefing on what I think should be done, I have a few ideas that I think can be done. And I think we can reduce substantially drug poisonings and overdoses in this state in one term. I think we can have success, substantial success in one term, and I stand ready to help with uh, and to and for anyone in earshot who uh, wants to reach out to me. Um, Thank you again for being with us. I hope you all have a great weekend. And um, until Monday, I am Seth Liebson. God bless you all. Class is dismissed.